You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. So to our first reader this evening, Sophie Collins is co-founder and editor of Tender, an online quarterly promoting work by female identified writers and artists. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, Poetry London, The White Review, and she edited Currently and Emotion, an anthology of translations published by Test Centre. Her debut collection, Who is Mary Sue, was published by Faber in 2018. Please give a very warm welcome to our first reader, Sophie Collins. Healers. I encountered a scaffold outside the Holy Trinity Church in Vladimir. At first, I didn't notice her, slumped against the side of the church. She was pretty small for a scaffold, pretty unassuming. Her safety mesh was torn in places and some bleached all over and threatened to dislodge due to a forceful wind that was typical of the season. She was shaking. She was fundamentally insecure. She told me that good foundations are essential, but that the men who had put her together hadn't taken advantage of the right opportunities. Now, each day, someone came by, called her unsafe and also a liability, and then left, failing to initiate the dismantling process that, yes, would have been painful and slow, but kinder. International visitors to the church blamed her for the mess of tools and rags on the grounds and for the fact that they could no longer see the church's celebrated mural depicting St. Artemy of Vercola, unusually pious, highly venerated child saint killed by lightning. His dead body radiated light, never showed signs of decay and was in fact said to have affected multiple miracles of healing. I said comforting things to the scaffold, but she only seemed to lean more heavily against the side of the church. We are rarely independent structures, she said, before she dropped a bolt pin, which released a long section of tube, which released another bolt pin, which released several wooden boards, which scraped another tube and made an unbearable sound. Hello. Um, So... In some ways, this can be a difficult collection uh, to read from. It's it's made up of, um, I guess, individual lyric poems, like the one you just heard, um, but it also contains what um, are essays, I guess, um, as well as prose poems, short and long. Um, so I think I'll read a bit Uh, I'll read the title piece in full, which is an essay, um, a lyric essay, I suppose, about perceptions of women's writing, and then go straight into a section from one of the longer prose pieces called The Engine. Who is Mary Sue? Coined by Paula Smith in 1973, Mary Sue is a pejorative term used by writers and readers of fan fiction to describe protagonists who are believed to be thinly disguised versions of the fanfic author's idealised self. There is no outright consensus as to Mary Sue's character type. Invariably, however, Mary Sue is female. 
she is said to be difficult to identify with, poorly constructed and without depth. She is associated with narcissism and or wish fulfillment. I read that fear of creating a Mary Sue may be restricting and even silencing some writers. I don't know if I should be sending this to you, wrote one young author in her cover letter to a magazine. I'm afraid it's a Mary Sue, only I don't know what that is. On the iconic cover of her book, How to Suppress Women's Writing, Joanna Russ lists in a large italicized tangerine font a set of common objections to female authored works. Among them, she wrote it, but look what she wrote about. The bedroom, the kitchen, her family, other women. She wrote it, but she isn't really an artist and it isn't really art. It's a thriller, a romance, a children's book, sci-fi. Inside, men and women, whites and people of color do have very different experiences of life and one would expect such differences to be reflected in their art. I wish to emphasize here that I am not talking vis-a-vis -vis sex about the relatively small area of biology, but about socially enforced differences. Russ shares an anecdote. She is on a creative writing MA committee of three professors. The other two professors are male. The committee has the unenviable task of reading approximately 200 manuscripts during the ad university's admissions period. In part one of the anecdote, Russ recalls disagreeing with her two male colleagues on the believability of a short story by a woman which ends with the female protagonist lying in bed next to her sleeping husband, wishing she had the courage to mutilate him with a piece of cooking equipment. In part two, Russ remembers being impressed by a woman's poem in which a girl returning home from a date with a boy she does not like opens the white refrigerator in her mother's kitchen to find that its interior is entirely covered with red cabbage roses. The male professors find the anger of the story's protagonist overstated and the poem's essential image unrecognizable, disengaged. Neither woman is admitted to the creative writing course. Russ again. If women's experience is defined as inferior to, less important than, or narrower than men's experience, women's writing is automatically denigrated. She wrote it, but look what she wrote about becomes, she wrote it, but it's unintelligible, badly constructed, thin, spasmodic, uninteresting, etc. A statement by no means identical with, she wrote it, but I can't understand it. In which case, the failure might be with the reader. Thus Mary Sue becomes, in my eyes, an unwitting embodiment of the double standard of content. I note that in literary fiction, when a female writer's female protagonist is considered up to scratch, she is often taken to be a thinly disguised version of the author's non-idealized self. Something like, a woman who tries to invent in literature will fail, whereas a woman who succeeds in writing is believed to have done so to the extent that she has been able to accurately portray the details of her own life. She wrote it, but the protagonist's all her, a Mary Sue. I begin to collect quotations, responses, among them. Interviewer, could you say a little more about the relationship of your fictional characters to you, their author? The usual prurient question about how autobiographical an author's fiction is is especially tempting in your case. Laurie Moore, 
Why is the usual prurient question especially tempting in my case? Is it really? Interviewer. So tell me, your new book, it features a woman who is from the islands, who has a husband who's a composer. They live in a northeastern town. She has two kids. Sounds a lot like you. How autobiographical is it? Jamaica Kincaid. It's not about me, but it's about things that I'm familiar with. And I hope a reader coming to it doesn't look for clues about anything that happened to me. It's about something deeper. My own self, my own everyday life is sort of very untidy and smelly and kind of revolting, really. Interviewer. Roland Barthes writes, every biography is a novel that dares not speak its name. Is the unnamed narrator of 90s actually called Lucy? Lucy Ives. The narrator's name could be Lucy, but her name is certainly not Lucy Ives, or at any rate, she isn't me. The narrator doesn't have a life in the same way that you or I do, which is, of course, obvious. But all the same, I want to say that I don't intend for this narrator to have a life. I intend for her to tell the story. Sharon Olds. I would use the phrase apparently personal poetry for the kind of poetry that I think people are referring to as confessional. Apparently personal, because how do we really know? We don't. Rachel Cusk. The misuse of the term narcissism in relation to my work is nauseating. My life is the trash going into the incinerator to power the book I'm trying to write. And this is the, um, the engine comes in three parts. This is the central section. Small white monkeys stretch around in the dirt beneath a tree, but do not get dirty. They pick themselves up and dash away across the concrete plain, bobbing out of sight. They are silent. I see faces in objects so frequently. Is this empathy? A door handle, a gate, a bony rock, a refuse sack, a tree, a church, a glove, a button, an icon. On an oriental lamp base, a floral design becomes a kind of ugly peony bonnet baby, petulant and saccharine. Finally, I'm happy, I think. I eat some supplements, drink some coffee, and for hours, everything is interesting. I take over 200 photos on my phone. Everything is poetry. Everything is trompe l'oeil. I try to think objectively about the discrete elements required of a masterpiece. I become itchy then. I fall asleep. The following evening is my dinner with the curator. I wear a fresh white gown. During le plat principal, my left bell sleeve slides through a rich source as I reach for my glass, but when I retract it, the source slides right off. I bother the sleeve edge with my fingers for the rest of the evening. The white monkeys watch me from a pylon far away. The dinner is ultimately disappointing. I had nothing to say, barely knowing any of the names the curator mentioned, and on the few occasions I purported to recognize one, further discussion revealed me to be inept. I feel terribly guilty after the drink wears off. I remember at one point noticing in my behavior that I was more or less pretending to be the curator's daughter. The next day, I am offered an interview with a contemporary art magazine. I accept the invitation, and they never email again. I wake up a day not long afterwards covered in milk. My nipples are leaking warm stuff all over. I get up and notice that I am pregnant. My belly is huge. I update my social media profiles with the news. The curator stops contacting me. 
the editors stop contacting me. Only one or two of my peers continue to send me emails and they have so little to say. They ask for updates on me and the pregnancy, but the interest is all feigned. I cry and smoke packets of white cigarettes and don't tell anyone. I tell everyone I'm not pregnant anymore. They have even less to say to me. Soon, I have a baby. Um, so, having grown up in Holland, uh, translation um, from Dutch into English has become a really big part of my writing practice. And um, just recently, I published my first full-length translation, which is this book. Um, and it's a translation of a contemporary Dutch poet called Lika Marsman. And uh, me and Lika were working on a, a completely different kind of book. We were, she's a year younger than me, she's, she's 28, but um, she's already published two poetry collections and a novel. Um, I think she published her first when she was about 20. So we were working on a selected from her first two um, collections. Um, but uh, sort of halfway through that process, when we were getting down to, you know, uh, deciding which poems would go in the translated book, Lika was diagnosed with chondrosarcoma, which is a very rare form of uh, bone cancer. It's cancer of the cartilage. Um, and in the weeks following her diagnosis, uh, she wrote this book, The Following Scan Will Last Five Minutes. And um, after some back and forth, we decided that this is the book we would translate and publish. So it was done very quickly, um, and I guess with quite an acute urgency. Um, so I'll read a few of the pieces from this. And I think the only thing you need to know about these poems is that occasionally uh, a Dutch brand or place name comes up, as well as someone called Simone, um, which is Lika's partner. And most of the poems in this book uh, their titles are riffs on the book title. The following scan will last four minutes. Before you sink away into the morphine-sweet unreality of the everyday, we would like to say something about those spasms and fasciculations of yours, as well as that bump on your back. For years, you have no doubt been Googling every freckle. Just recently, you were at the doctor's with a patch of dry skin on your leg, diagnosis, too much shower gel. But on hearing the word chondrosarcoma, you went home and immediately unplugged your router. Do you know where your priorities lie? Do you know what life has to offer? Or did those endless therapy sessions and that eight-week mindfulness course simply teach you how to tolerate suffering? That every signal in your body can be temporarily expelled to the rhythm of some breathing exercise? Let the pain be. To be free is to be free of need. Wrong. To be free is to need some fresh air and to be able to get up and go outside. Don't say we didn't warn you. The following scan will last two minutes. It is 1952. Bright colors exist only in nature. Do not yet fill the aisles of Xenos. You can add an egg to the cake mix to make yourself feel like a good housewife. Somewhere on the outskirts of Twente, my great-grandfather is dying of bladder cancer. 
It is 2018. You can separate glass from paper to make yourself feel like a good citizen. You use a linen shopping bag. You give readings about the environment. You travel off-peak using a discount. You no longer have the strength to collect the small change you get for recycling bottles at the supermarket. You just throw them all in the general waste. The following scan will last less than a minute. Afternoons are Eurosport replays of alpine skiing sponsored by Jack Wolfskin and Milka, brands to whom I am grateful for facilitating this daily moment of calm. Evenings are the joy I take in loving Simone as much as I do, especially in the face of this overwhelming exhaustion. Cancer is so quotidian. You hear about it on Wednesday morning, die on a Tuesday afternoon, no strobe lights, no cloakroom check-in, the sun is shining, a completely ordinary insipid sun above the A10 and the exit for Praxis. The following scan will last five minutes. The internet has a great deal to offer someone who doesn't wish to dwell, for whom every breath is a distraction. Throbbing lung tumours, the man in the street is always right. The nation state has been disarticulated by her opponents, then glorified by her supporters. The man in the street is always right. The news repeats itself, the rhythm of drones, the oncologist commences sentencing. There is nothing I need to see except again and again a new day with you. The MRI tunnel speaks. The following scan will last five minutes. Poetry fills this empty head. Contrast agent, the stench of anesthetic, a beach ball in your nose, a volleyball in your stomach. Poetry fills this empty head. The rhythm falters. The news repeats itself. Language without sound, cancer without catharsis. There is nothing I need to see except again and again a new day. Um, and I'll just finish with uh, a newer piece, um, so it's it, it's a, com a commission. So I was asked to write this by the South Bank Centre in response to an exhibition that they had on in the Hayward Gallery there, um, an exhibition of the work of a contemporary Korean artist called Lee Bull, um, and it's something that I wrote uh, while I was translating the last book I read from. Um, so it's kind of written through with a lot of anxiety um, about health. Um, at the time, I think that was all I could see in the sculptures when I walked into the exhibition. There were these sort of massive uh, foamy pink things hanging from the ceiling and they looked like tumours or guts, things that were sort of spilling out. Um, it's called About the Body and Likeness. It all begins in the gut where shards indigestible tear open the walls. When blood spills, there is no mess. There is no bodily mess, save in tumefactive sludge. I would like to doze off inside this gleaming basophil. Regular vibrations, relaxing proprioception as we glide past a fragment of bone sunk in plasma, the spectacle of lymphocytes deeply staining, eccentric. A bunker, an event, dust, some neighbors. By now, fish are deadly land animals, quadrupeds with color-coded mating rituals. The tarry landscape is hostile to ungulates who develop subterranean features. Erection of countless town models. 
The dogged work of preservation supersedes embodiment. Men's corpses are embalmed, made up for display, while women who wish to live must gain the written endorsement of their male companions. Medical records, like mutating cells, are subject to damage, may be lost or copied twice. A lauded teacher of letters once made a drawing of a cephalopod for his students. Women jabbing, he said, are more like this, more like this than men are, by which he meant to say, nothing happens to me. Octopuses eat their own limbs when chronically understimulated. What is frightening about this body is its judicial disregard. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Sophie for that beautifully varied reading. Now, our next poet, Zafa Kunyel, published a pamphlet in the Faber New Poets series in 2014, was poet in residence at the Wordsworth Trust the same year. In 2011, his poem, Hill Speak, won third prize in the National Poetry Com Competition. And his debut collection, Us, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. So please give a warm welcome to Zafa Kunyel. Thank you. Um, I just set my stopwatch. Um, it's lovely to be here. Um, I can't see, see, see uh, people because of the, the lights, but um, thank you for coming, and it's lovely to be in Dublin. Um, uh, I will start with the poem uh, that the book's named after, Us. Um, and I suppose, I, suppose um, I was thinking when I wrote, uh, was writing about the, this little word us, how it holds lots of confusion and kind of worlds of difference. Um, I just want to say it's the first time that my son has ever been to my poetry reading. Um, so he's another kind of us for me. Um, and when I was young, I used to hear my uh, father's relatives use the word us. My dad's from Pakistan, Kashmir, and... Um, and sometimes I'd hear his relatives say us, and I didn't know if my English mum was included in that, and I'd hear other people say us, and I, th I knew my mum was, but I wouldn't know if my dad was. Um, so this looks at this word, us, as a space that holds wide waters. Us. If you ask me, us takes in undulations, each wave in the sea, all insides compressed, as if from one coast, you could reach out to the next. And maybe it's a Midlands thing, but when I was young, us equally meant me, says the one. Oi, you, tell us where you're from. And the way football fans share one fate. I, being one, am Liverpool, no less, cresting the Mexican wave of we and us, a shore-like state, Two places at once, God knows what's in it. And at opposite ends, my heart sunk at separations of us. When it comes to us, colour me unsure. Something in me or it has failed the course. I'd love to think I could stretch to it, us. But the waves therein are too wide for words. I hope you get here where I'm coming from. I hope you're with me on this, between love and loss, 
where I'd give myself away, stranded as if the universe is a matter of one stress, us. I hope from here on I can say it, and though far-fetched, it won't be too far wrong. And I'll just say, um, I like rambling a lot when I'm doing poetry reading, so forgive me. Um, but uh, it's just occurred to me that uh, the, the us actually came from uh, a book that I had called Ulysses and Us, which by Declan Kibbard. A, a, oh, sorry? Kybird, sorry. Thank you, Declan Kybird. Um, uh, which uh, I think it was the seeing the Ulysses and Us and seeing that Ulysses held the word us um, and I haven't even read the whole book, um, but the but it's given me it gave me this idea for how Ulysses was this I suppose held this kind of image of a big novel and a big story and I suppose it connects to Odysseus as well, which also ends with us. And I was thinking about these sea journeys and this small word. Anyway, that that and that was what led to that poem. Um, so it's nice to be in Dublin. Uh, I will read a poem that's another about another small word. This is the word the. Um, and it's another small word that feels like a long word. The word. I couldn't tell you now what possessed me to shut summer out and stay in my room, or at least attempt to, in bed mostly. It's my dad standing in the doorframe, not entering but pausing to shape advice that keeps coming back. Whatever is matter must enjoy the life. He pronounced this twice, and me, I heard wrongness in putting a the before life. In two minds, ashamed, aware, that I knew better, though was stuck inside, while the sun was out, that I'm native here, in a halfway house, like that sticking word, that definite article, half right, half wrong, still present between enjoy and life. Um, and I might read now a poem about a fight I had when I was at school, when I was about my son's age at primary school. Um, it was a fight I didn't really want to be in. And you know how your friends set you up and um, with this fight and they decided like little film directors that we should be on the side of the hill in the park and that we'd roll down the hill, um, um, which we did very dutifully. Uh, and it's, it's called Spark Hill, uh, which is an area of Birmingham. Uh, you, you probably won't get this over here, but there, there, were, uh, there was a BBC thing called Citizen Khan and that was set in Spark Hill. And it starts off with, uh, welcome to Spark Hill, Birmingham, the capital of British Pakistan. Um, so that's the kind of area it is. But um, that has nothing to do with this poem. Um, actually, now I've started rambling. Um, I, might, I might point out something that no one seems to pick up. Um, fair enough. But um, it's got the word fight in it. And um, right in the middle of uh, the keyboard is, are the letters F, G, H, bang, smack bang in the middle. And the other letters that make up the word fight are I and T. So I repeat the word it a lot. Anyway, and so it ends with me looking at the slope of a, of a keyboard. Spark Hill. Fight, 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 fight. They'd begun the chant before we'd started, and started was the word. 
He's going to start on you over there after school in Spark Hill Park by the slope. They talked it up so much it happened. They gave me the word and they gave it to him, Jason Walsh. He's going to start on you. What made them do it? We'd come first or second in school races. Same height, curly hair, mid-brown skin, friends. Let's see them fight. We both went quiet as gravity after morning break and all afternoon and turned up as the other or the future seemed to need on the hill after the last bell. Starting was hard. The first punch was a shove, like shoves were our slow way of talking. Shoving arms became thrown arms. Thrown arms became wrestling arms. And there was love in the grip on the fat lip of the slope. No one else there, not the arguing parents, not the news, not the crowd, only ashamed attempts at anger or world turned upside down, which was us with a crowd shouting us to tumble as we fought, like in the films. We did, and when we did, the ground felt harder than any fist on my mouth, as clouds whose names I'd yet to learn intermingled with grass, liquidly, like a head in a font, like his head was once. Only the liquid was light, the mute grey clouds, or the crowd's word as we turned. Fight. I tasted turf and saw sky. Tongue-tied light came up from the ground's mouth, the way I had shaped songs that morning's assembly. It's false. No energy in it, but where's it from? The Big Bang or before? Whatever it is, I'm not feeling it and don't want to go back up and start again. Though that's what I'm hearing we should do. There at the foot of the hill, I push him weakly away, a shove to say, I don't mean it, leave it. I grip the bag I dropped at the start, a bag with a changed gravity, even the heavy logo, its big letters, H. E, A, D, and head home, head out of the park, down the very long Stratford Road. I didn't have the fight in me, or I didn't think I had, for a very long time, till this afternoon's grey passed the green curtain, and that afternoon's grey rubbed two flints behind my eyes, two flint clouds that ring a bell, dull and bright, and I sit down, quite some way from St John's Primary School, Spark Hill Park, and that slope where time felt dense, the opposite of light, and I look past my knuckles at it, it, the black up-tilted keyboard, and on that backlit slope, these central blocks, F, G, H, and I've started to type, fight, 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 fight. Um, great, so actually you mentioned the uh, Faber New Poets pamphlet, um, which is in the ancient year of 2014, um, uh, when Brexit was very far away. Um, but I might read a, a little poem uh, in that, that's not in the book, uh, it's called On the Brief, and it, it is a brief and kind of minor little poem, but it's about when I worked at Hallmark Cards. Um, and I used to have a nine-to-five job for five years uh, writing the rubbish in Hallmark cards. You know, someone has to do it. Um, and I used to get briefs every day. 
and they were, they were piled up on my desk, A4 pages, and this one was actually written on the brief, and cleverly I've called it on the brief, uh, but, uh, but, and I suppose I'm thinking about the meaning of the word brief as well, but I include the, the instructions on the brief, because it, it would say things like, um, it would give you the level of sentiment required, so it would say light sentiment, medium sentiment, or heavy sentiment, and this was a short or light sentiment. Uh, anyway, and it, and it ends with the, the, the thing that actually went on this real-life Valentine card. So that's the last line of the poem. And by the way, I was on a final warning when I left the job. Um, they realised that, I, I, realize that I was writing poems, and um, they started to tell when I was working on my own stuff, because I looked like I was concentrating. Anyway, on the brief, I have a brief for a Valentine card. Short sentiment, no mention of love, must sound familiar. Piece of cake, a walk in the park, but now I'm stuck. Some place between the briefs on the desk and leaves elsewhere, between nine to five and spots of time the star snowing through the screensaver and the rain-clotted window and getting nowhere, nothing doing again. There's another poem I've half a mind to begin briefly, but instead much too much time later and with much it is written, can't get you out of my head. And that's what went on the card. True story. Um, so I might read now, um, actually I might read from these little haiku-like poems. I don't really call them haiku, they're kind of syllabic poems with, where I use that 575 thing. But it, it's about language really, and I play with kind of little half-rhyme things to link with the idea of distances in language. Um, so for instance, the first one has the word yar, which is my father's word for a kind of beloved or friend. Um, and it sounds like year to me, and my dad doesn't know the year he was born in. And like the Spark Hill poem about language um, and the fight, I think a lot about the difference between print language and oral language and how they fight with each other. Empty words. The year dad was born, a long lost trail. Listen, Yar, nothing was written. At home in Grasmere, thin mountain paths have me back, a boy in Kashmir. Stratford-on-Avon, mum and dad's first date, dad's twin kids in Pakistan. That was just me trying to rhyme Stratford-on-Avon and Pakistan, which I thought would be good after Grasmere and Kashmir. But, but actually it's true, my, my, my parents did have their first date in Stratford-on-Avon, and my dad had Twin kids, which he didn't tell my mum about at that time. Now we separate for the first time on our walk at the kissing gate. Old English Deor, an exile's lament, the past's dark, half-opened door. Where migrating geese pause to sleep, somewhere halfway is this pillow's crease. Invader to some, neither here nor there with me, our rhododendron. And rhododendron is kind of invasive, as you, you know, and, um, 
uh, actually, uh, and it's from the part of my world, the part of the world that my dad's from, the kind of Himalayan plant. Um, this is a kind of train poem, maybe manspreading even. Mate, I was here first, he says, elbowing my claim on half an armrest. Fromwards, lost to us, middle English, to head back from, to turn one's face. Um, that's a little joke for myself, because actually this book was going to be called Fromwards, and that's why I've got Fromwards, lost to us, middle, and it's middle English, and maybe I'm associating myself with middle English. Meaning homeland, mulk in Kashmir, exactly how my son demands milk. I don't know if you remember this stuff, but you used to say mulk like that. <laughs> Sorry to embarrass you. Bless you. But, but, um, full rhyme with Jellum, the river nearest his home, my father's realm. Actually, I love how in, in Ireland they say film, because my dad says film. Um, and so this was his. So, yes, strictly, uh, th this poem, if it's 575, isn't like, doesn't follow that, because on the page, it, it, on print, it looks like realm. But orally, it's correct, realm. Mouthing the word mouse, what escapes me is the thief in the Sanskrit, mus. You can't put a leaf between written and oral, that first a or a leaf. Letters, west to east, mum's hand would write. Dad's script went east to west, received. A for apple, Y for Yggdrasil, Odin's ash, which echoes with twig. Slow horse, the colour of trust. Wait, she wrote rust, from nowhere a letter. Uh, and that's that slow horse, the colour of rust, is from Sylvia Plath, uh, uh, aerial horse. Um, it's about that horse. And, um, but I misread it as uh, slow horse, the colour of trust, which initially I thought was really beautiful. And so it sort of added this little letter almost from the past or from nowhere. Um, something's missing here, a sixth sense between forests and hues, silver, that's that word silver that sounds like a colour, but like, like means woodland and all that. And, um, and something's missing here is the I, which that's my way of signing off Sylvia to the previous one. And also there's something's missing, was kind of obviously journals. And so forests and hues, I mean hues as colours, but I suppose it has a, uh, you know, a Ted Hughes thing. Birch and Alpha B, back when branch-like runes mothered, the words from the trees. Bok, bok, says my son, a bark up the right tree. Book, beach, were once bound, one. Um, I'll leave that one there. But yeah, you say bok for book, which is actually kind of relates to the old English word, which means um, book and beach. Um, and see what my time is. Okay. I might, I might re read uh, a poem called The Long Causeway, uh, which, which I wrote, f wrote for my son, and I've never, ever read it before. It has a bit of Katy Perry in it, which is embarrassing, but that was on the radio. We were I was driving between Grasmere, uh, between Hebden Bridge and Grasmere, and 
that the, the, the day suddenly became uh, snowy. Uh, um, and uh, anyway, yeah, and I suppose I'm thinking about um, kind of the beginnings of creation, maybe the Big Bang, the little spark that creates things. And we're on a road called the Long Causeway. The Long Causeway. We are driving higher and higher, twisted steepness holding my hand to first gear. Some homesick star-hung satellite making me climb Smithy Lane skyward to Blackshaw Head in a hired red Igo. Continue straight ahead, which is not easy down here, up and around the next bend on black ice. Boom, 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 even brighter than the moon, moon, moon. Turning down the radio so I can hear that sat-nav and myself think, because baby, you're a firework. All this time catching sight of a stick swoosh in, the, swoosh in and out of the windscreen mirror. I ask my boy, whose car seat faces back, if he's playing a game. I'm making things happy, ha sorry, I'm making things happen, daddy. Round the corner, the green dark edge is taken off the horizon as we go over the tops. On the turn is a white page, more defined than the lost sheep and hill clouds. I'm Jack Frost, he says. And behind that cold stick it picked up in the woods, like a new word. In the mirror, I see the brushstroke of a black road, tapered to a point backwards. Then before it, I see flashed what was a sword, that twig he'd seen to the hilt as gold, and now is differently sharp, a wand, delicate and moon-tipped, conducting the snow's dance beyond the stick's flourished end on a half-hidden long causeway. I'm snowing, I'm slowing now to a stop. Snow wand, sword, branch, whatever it is, the wave of it, or the first particle at its point, paints all that is behind us with all that lay ahead. And I end with a poem uh, called Prayer. So th thanks very much for having, having us. Prayer. First heard words delivered to this right ear. Allahu Akbar, God is great, by my father in the Queen Elizabeth maternity ward. God's breath in man returning to his birth, says Herbert, is prayer. If I continued his lines from there, from birth, a break Herbert chimes with heaven and earth. I'd keep in thought my mum on a Hereford hospital bed and say what prayer didn't end. I'd say I made an animal noise, hurled languages hurt at midday when word had come. Cancer, now so spread, by midnight her rings were off. I stayed on at her bed. Earlier, time and rhythm Flatlining, I whispered, thank you, I love you, thank you. Mouth at her ear, she stared on ahead. I won't know if she heard. Thank you. Thank you very much, Zafa. Uh, to close our evening, I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Sullivan, who's a professor of English at New College, Oxford. Her study of modernist writing, the work of Re revision, was published in 2013 and was awarded the Rose Mary Crawshay Prize by the Br British Academy. Hannah published her collection, Three Poems, in 2018, 
which went on to win the T.S. Eliot Prize in January this year. So please give a very warm welcome to Hannah Sullivan. Thank you. Um, thanks for having us. Um, I meant to read a longer section from the first poem in this book, um, You Very Young in New York, but um, I thought I would bookend that by um, reading a little bit from a new poem that I've been working on. Um, it's called Tenants, um, a poem for two voices. So um, the relationship between the, the two voices is that one is a more of a narrative voice and the other is a, a sort of interrupting, kind of intrusive thought voice. The poem is about being on um, maternity leave in my neighbourhood, um, and which is right next to the Grenfell Tower. Um, and I had a baby uh, two years ago. Um, so I'm just going to read the prologue. Um, prologue postpartum. Uh, my stomach was a loose trapezium, the skin beneath the navel slightly dented, reminding me of geography at school and sketching out a cindercone volcano. Maybe a loop of herniated bowel was simply swelling from the hematoma. Six doctors had been round me shoving down, their movements puppet-like, unsynchronized. I felt it in the movement of my shoulders, not pain, but the foreknowledge of being bruised. The person going in was cool and long, a malt. I was delirious, a popsicle. The baby who had gone had flipped to breach, been pulled out with the forceps, name-tagged, weighed. I heard my body pushed around the table. I saw the blood with which I was transfused. All I'd noticed were his thin red heels. I thought, oh, that's not my son. His feet are wrong. My other son had thick-soled scarlet feet, like knitted booties on a Christmas elf. My new son had a silly, croaky voice. The midwife was amazed he'd raised his head. And there he's thinking that I'm you, she said. Eventually, they put him on my chest. Often at that moment there would be snow. It fell chunkily and carelessly. Just why, you think, remembering the long walk home, the boulders hanging around all spring in Harvard Square, frozen and refrozen, simplified. A benediction, he might say, the boulders smooth and dappled, so many brancusi torsos of a girl. No milk again. So you make Vietnamese iced coffee. The skewer-punched can is held inverted. Nothing comes out at first. And then a shining lip of crepe de chine. The conflagration in the glass the tiny fat beads scurrying on the surface of the coffee, surprising as the first colostrum. All night, the full moon at its perigee, they wheeled in babies from the labor ward. I couldn't sleep. Men argued, babies grunted, the medication cart was late again. My baby snuffled in his old bump shape and in the next door cubicle, two women were offering almond biscuits to the nurse. This lady's done with you, one of them joked. She's had six girls, and look, she's had her son. The mother's laugh was modest but replete. She seemed to be concurring. In her laugh, I heard the mastery of finishing. I wanted codeine in a paper cup, a long, blank creamsicle of oromorph. Instead, I did the magic painting book we'd bought my older son to colour in. There's Fireman Sam, he said. Look at his helmet. I thought of monks illuminating books in turmeric and saffron, ochre, smalt. His hair was long and fine across his eyes. 
The pages had dried out now, wrinkly, blank, but when I licked my finger and rewiped, the first slice of the rainbow, red and orange, lit up and then bled runnily to yellow. Sitting side-saddle in the ward, so overfilled with water that his shape is gone, breathless your father, sitting on the bed in his blue gown, crying with his mouth, tears bolting from the throat the colour of a mohair bear. He thinks you've gone downstairs to fetch the paper. But you're right there, behind the panel door, examining the pattern of the glass, the houndstooth check of inlaid wire, whooping up these bright Purell meringues. After the birth, my mind seem magnified, but also blurred the tree's viridian long jellied strings, but spackled with long floaters, paper chains, long jellied strings, dispersing reddish algae, so bunting swung between them, it was May, and when I went into the frothing street, a system that was closed being broken, a system that was closed, I felt like Mr. Messy and the Mr. Men, all red and tangled, hard to colour in, a system that was closed being broken, so the urine jug you're bearing slowly to the nurse's station, hunched, turns as each thick clot breaks up, a pale rosé, all red and tangled, hard to colour in, my tracing lines had gone, I was unedged, Provençal almost. The colour of our road was painful to me, and sometimes when I stood up from my chair, you've done 500 mils and you can go. It all went black from outside in, the world, just do the paperwork, and then the day, the world retracting like a drawstring bag being drawn, and then the day, and what was yesterday, your body hangs inside a car seat from your husband's arm. The air blew through my body, my insides leaked out into the air, and you evaporate. And on my black compression pants, the scar left shining trails. You are adulterated, mixed, the dried up residue, and then the day, the milk let down in coins around my nipples. You are adulterated, mixed, the dried up residue, and then the day, what is emulsified. Um... I'm going to turn now and read um, from the opening, um, maybe about the opening half of the first poem um, in, in three poems, which is uh, You, Very Young in New York. Rosie used to say that New York was a fairground. You'll know when it's time, when the fair is over, but nothing seems to happen. You stand around on the same street corners, smoking, thin-elbowed, looking down avenues in a lime green dress with one arm raised, waiting to get older. Nothing happens. You try without success the usual prescriptions, the usual essays on innocence. I love you to the wrong person. I feel depressed. Kissing a girl, a sharpener, sea urchin, juice cleansers, but the senses laxly fed are self-replenishing, fresh as the first time. So even the eventual sameness has a savour for you. Even the sting when someone flinches at I love you is not unwelcome, like the ulcer on your tongue wetted on the ridges of a tooth. 
And when he slams you hard against the frame, the poor-ticked sallow bruise seems truer than the speed of the spasm with which you came. So nothing happens. No matter what you try, the huge lost innocence at which you aimed recedes like long perspectives, like the sky square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn unseen as you watch the unlit cabs go by. All summer the park smelled of cloves and it was dying. Now it is Labor Day and you have been sleeping through a rainstorm half aware of the sewage and frying peanut oil and the ozone rising in the morning heat and the sound of your roommate hooking the chain, flipping ice cubes into a brandy balloon, pouring juice over them. Ruby Sanguinello till they giggle, popping their skins, the freezer throbs. He has been beating a man he met on Craigslist. He has been dreaming. Old New York, a James novel. A Greenwich Village Christmas. A certain kind of frost in the meatpacking district. And the smell of the carcasses dull with the tang of freezing blood beside the skip of the Hudson wind. You have been thinking of the building opposite at night. The lights going off one by one. A diminished Mondrian, one ochre square where a woman undresses for the city, stroking her puffy thighs. You hear him talking on the phone about you, his petite innocente. All summer you have been eating peaches from the green market. Overripe in September, they need to rest in the icebox, sitting with their bruises. All summer you have been dreaming of fall and its brittle confection of branches. Lying awake in the fat pulse of November rain as the bond market falls and the art market gets nervous, starts to freeze up and hipsters keep on trying to sell Huckleberry Jam from Brooklyn and novelists keep on going to Starbucks to craft their sagas, adjusting their schemas, picking like pigeons at the tail of the morning croissant. As the bartenders figure out the winter cocktail lists, telling each other that Sinar grapefruit bitters and a small batch mezcal will be trending in the new year, even though guests are still going to be wanting Negronis at weddings, gin and tonics on first dates, Manhattans before moving upstairs away from the camera phones on illicit business. Schramsberg 98 is working well for Caitlin in the Nouveau Bellini. Jed crafts a drink from porter, coffee rum, and brocchetto d'acqui. It can only be written in Chinese, but is ordered as the vice grip. Its taste is whipped cream and kidneys, beer bitter and honeyed. He makes it for the girl in leathers with a face like the Virgin Mary. You are listening to Bowie in bed, thinking about the hollows of his eyes, his lunatic little hand jigs, longing for Berlin in the 70s, you are thinking of masturbating, but the vibrator's batteries are low and the plasticine pink stick rotates leisurely in your palm, casting its space-age glow into the winter shadows. Moving in the bathroom at Christmas, plucking your eyebrows, shaving. On Friday, Trine will be back and you'll take two Advil and lie on a table in Chelsea, holding yourself open, Stretch it, she says, irritably sometimes, and stretch as lavender wax wells 
voluptuously in hidden places and turn as you kneel on all fours so she can clean you up behind and still parting you open her fingers spend one moment too long tissuing off the dead wax with almond oil and all done she pats producing hot towels then moving lightly over the floor taking medicines with last night's overnight out brackish water in a coffee mug, taking a levothyroxine, half a Lexapro, some vitamins to ward off colds, one to reduce PMS, some other crap you bought in a basement discount store with a cold last Monday from a man who thought you might be low in magnesium. He said this while eating vegan candy from a ripped out pack snatched from his own counter. Then, the weighing, the exhalation on the scales, a finger calipering for fatness, a finger slipping in to check the cervix and walking out of the house into a world overwhelmed with rain and light snow at more than capacity. So the taxi drivers are only in the middle lane and the rose sellers have stayed home. Evening comes without seeing light again, between you and a window, the beige Lego maze of officers, people whose names you don't know. You should be addressing inefficiencies in online processes, mastering multi-channel, getting serious about small business. You have created a spreadsheet with 13 tabs. The manager is giving you hell, ordering sushi, cancelling cabs. The senior partner calls from Newark. Thanks, team. His thin voice purrs. He's sipping something. Let's make it a win-win. But in the morning, brushing his new teeth, looking out into the snow's huge act of world effacement, it's lethargy, he knows. Things are a liquid, freezing up. Light is abortive on the grayscale park. It's time to short the fucking market. In Chennai, meanwhile, a man is waiting for your analysis, eating his breakfast of microwave dal and mini idlis, checking the cricket scores on his computer, reading Thoreau, wondering what New York looks like at night in snow. He is applying to Columbia, NYU Stern, and Stanford GSB. He thinks of going abroad as an attempt to live deliberately, imagining the well-stacked fires in iron-fenced Victorians, the senior partners Grace under pressure, his Emersonian turn of phrase, the summers spent sailing, the long reaches of, of sand loosely threaded with grass on Cape Cod beaches. Evening comes without eating anything except a whoopie pie you find left over in the kitchen from someone's birthday surprise. The malted cream of the filling is so rich it clumps like shit. You lick it off your fingernails and Google the bakery's website. On Yelp, someone has written, this case of cake smells so good. If I ever have to go on a respirator, knock on wood, I hope they use this cake case as my respirator. Smiling at the screen, a flicker of dry tongue now, a dopamine prick as the Ritalin kicks in. It has something about it of the narrow room, silk lined with Flemish tapestries you want dreamt about being locked in. Your psychiatrist said it would help your productivity but it feels like drawn-out sex on coke, like something dirty. The bakery 
is in Astoria on Broadway and 28th. On Street View, you look at strangers' faces at the averted gaze of men in sportswear, smoking in front of famous brands at takeout bikes, nail salons, Turkish ice cream stands and a grocery store with an unlit sign. Hot coffee, the slow passing of a cortege in March sleet, the poverty. Last week, New York magazine said Queens was getting hip. At Club 19, Manhattan transplants chill and sip cold hoppy crucevice whiskey sours and starro pramen. On Fridays, a pop-up serves tonkotsu miso ramen. You wonder what it means to define Astoria's epicenter or press panini with finesse, what the median two-bed rent is. Once a year, you go in a cab to the Bohemian Beer Garden and eat pink flayed kielbasa, penal and artery hardening, while elderly men dance to a band in blue embroidered hose, holding their elbows rigidly like wax Pinocchios. Your friends wear flannel and McDonald's name badges. They talk about Ben Bernanke and Isabel Moran wedges. You are slightly disappointed in Obama's domestic policy. You think the great American novelist is David Foster Wallace. The epigraph to The Pale King is from Frank Bidart. It is about pre-existing forms and formal questions in art. Control N is jammed in the spreadsheet of your mind. Nothing seems real or right, so you just press send. Then a smear of olive lipstick and you walk out into the night, into the breeze, the smell of roasting, the rich quarters of delight. And as you're dancing in a suit skirt to the killer's Mr. Brightside, feeling the anthem soar and rise, he makes the PowerPoint slides. You'll present them in the morning to the client while he sleeps in a fruit and urine breeze beneath a linen sheet. I'm just going to read, um, finally, one um, short piece from from this poem, uh, a little later in the poem. Um, You might have seen um, in the news uh, today, yesterday, that the inquiry into what happened um, at the Grenfell Tower has been, the report has been delayed. Um, so, so this poem is, is partly about me and it's partly about that event and some of the material um, is actually taken uh, in a sort of documentary style from the evidence. I think there are 31,000 documents that have been uploaded from the inquiry. To see the length and breadth and depth of hell the water sluicing down the stairs from overhead, the hoses tangled round the bariatric patients, some of the hose pipes reaching out a hand, not hose pipes, soft, to apprehend the whiteness of the fire, its ways, the swiftness of ascent and its migration, the fetus slowing, losing his newly acquired skills, his fingers no longer bothering to touch his new-grown hair, his mother carried out her face the soot side up, to apprehend his mother running large with him back up the stairs into the smoke, the cyanide, her mind, her hand, her hand, the memory of her daughter's wrist being lost. To meditate on the unborn, on the efficiency of the placenta, its vascularity, the chunks of liver and the swift diffusion across the intervillous space of molecules. To meditate on children lost, stillborn, the man who planned to tie the baby to his chest, step into air, flip up, fall, lying on his back to break her fall. To hear the dead, to hear the short cough, petulant, the hosepipe made being trodden on the pizzicato tap of the skull against the stairs, 
the water jets, the firemen wrestling the carcass down and outside, underneath a tree at dawn, the body laid out on the ground, that rattling sound. Um, thank you. Thanks for having us all. Um.